Episode 127 of the Bevan James Isles Show, an interview with Johan Harry. Radio team, welcome along to episode 127 of the Bevan James I'll show you a fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness so you can get all the benefits that go alongside it. I'm very excited today guys, I've got an interview with Johan Harry, he's the author of Lost Connections, it's actually 4.25 in the morning right now, I got up at 3 in the morning to do this interview with Johan because he's in the UK and it was the only time I could make it work but... When you listen to this interview, you'll see it was worth me getting up at three in the morning to do this interview because uh, the book, The Lost Connections, is a book, it's actually really interesting, you know, if you've listened to the show, you know I've been really pushing this book in the last period of time, but what's been really great is I've been getting lots of feedback from people who have read it, um, and, and some of them who have suffered depression and just said how powerful it's been for them, and as I did this interview, it, it was quite a, a, an interesting self-reflection experience. Johan, is, you're going to listen to the interview. He's such a great interviewer. He's um, obviously a highly intelligent man, um, in-depth reporting on this, and can tell a really great story. So you're going to hear that really soon. But it was very much, even as I was interviewing, I was just going through this kind of self-reflection experience. So I'm not going to do much talking before the interview today. So it's just two things I want to do. I'm going to give a couple of little shout-outs. And the first one goes to a friend of mine, Carla Fitzsimons. She's uh, one of the managers within one of the worlds I work in. And uh, she was just sending me some emails about work. And she said, do you know, Do you know? I've got some friends in Abu Dhabi who actually love your show. And she said, my niece Frankie and her partner Sam are big fans of the podcast based on, um, I think in Dubai actually. Well, they were, they were doing the Dubai Half Marathon on the 9th of February. I know it's a little bit late. Um, but I just want to say a big shout out to Frankie and Sam. And also I was at a party the other night and a guy called David Rumble came up to me and said, oh my God, my mate in Australia, Craig Debenham, is a massive fan of your work. So he said, can you please give him a shout out on the show? So I just want to say a big shout out to those people. And lastly, before I get on the um, into the interview with Johan, if you want to become a patron of the show, you go to bevanjamesiowas.com. You just see there's a patronage link on there and it just contributes to what I'm doing on the show. And as you know, the Bevan James Iowa show is meant to be a fitness show but it's really about being a healthy person and, and I'm, I hope you after you've listened to the show for a while you understand what I'm trying to promote and when I talk about health it's such a bigger picture and this interview I'm about to put on soon will really reinforce that so if you want to support me in what I'm doing just go to my website bevanjamesisles.com you'll see a Patreon link on there go on there and you can just donate as little or as much as you want to the show and when you do you get a little nickname and these people are patrons of the show we've got Brittany McEachin and she's the mystic we've got Greg the Python Crowley Luke Mayhem Miller Pip Silent Assassin Langford and then we've got Kate the Perfect One Southern so those are patrons of the show anyway I'm very excited to get this interview up Johan Harry the author of Lost Connections guys be ready for a good one here we go Radio team, I'm very excited today to have um, an author who I have a lot of respect for. He's had uh, two books that have been very influential, one called Chasing the Scream and the latest one called Lost Connections. Uh, Johan, Harry, how are you? 
Yeah, really good. Really excited to be with you, Bevan. Thanks very much. We were just talking before we came on came on air about um, about this problem recently, where we can see each other, but this is obviously only for audio. This podcast, but I kept I'm always conscious when I do video things. I recently did a an interview where I didn't realise they were going to use the the video right yeah. so i thought it was just the audio so i was like scratching myself i was wearing this insanely aggressive t-shirt i don't know if i can swear on your you, you on your can you, you can swear if you want by all means it was a t-shirt someone had given me and it just said read a fucking book you can't and <laughs> everyone watching this podcast must have thought i was this insanely aggressive person and also i always conscious uh when i when i'm in my flat in london i always do my interviews with this bookcase behind me. And I suddenly had this moment of paranoia because do you remember when Pauline Hansen was revealed? Yeah. She did some interview and it was revealed that behind her, she had loads of books by Hitler. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, no way. And this was years and years ago. And suddenly I think, obviously I do not have loads of book by, books by Hitler. And obviously I don't have any sympathy for Pauline Hansen, but I was like, uh, oh God, what's, what's behind me? What can I be that, right? The, um, years ago, I, have, I went to Iraq years ago when Saddam was in power. Uh, to write something about it. And uh, I had this big Saddam Hussein rug that I bought in Baghdad. And I remember I once did an interview where someone came to my flat to interview me. And I suddenly realized they were about to film me with this massive rug of Saddam Hussein behind me, which was very unfortunate. So the last minute, I suppose like, wait, let's do it from a different angle, shall we? Right? Anyway, I'm glad that the viewers cannot see me. I remember one time years ago, I was interviewing some specialist on like nutrition, real, real toppy, and he was like, big American guy and he was talking about the importance of nutrition I had a bottle of coke and a bottle of chips and all behind me and I, was, I, I was suddenly aware as I was doing the interview I had all this behind me and I became really self-aware because I was trying to promote the right message and I was being this big contradiction and oh jeepers creepers also the contrast between viewers seeing how like you basically look like the embodiment of good health yeah yeah and I Travelling around for two months and I'm like, just look like I've just died, basically. So I'm glad that people cannot see the contrast between you and me as well. Can we talk about that? Pain. You know, you know, your book is, um, you, you know, you're a very um, successful author. What's it like when a book comes out? You know, this is a book I'm, I'm sure is drawing a lot of attention and, you you know, PR is a pretty big part of the game. Just on a personal level, how do you manage the game of what you're doing right now? For me, it's really exciting because... With, with both my books, with, with Chase and Scream, which was partly about addiction and how we've misunderstood what addiction is, and with this new book, Lost Connections, which is about how I think we've misunderstood what depression is, mm. it's really exciting because what you can see when you're speaking to people is their faces light up when they start to learn some of this stuff in the way that I lit up when I learned some of this stuff. So I think some of the books that I, you know, there's another book I'm writing, for example, um, which, you know, will not speak to the same kind of audience. I'm writing a biography of Noam Chomsky, the amazing American uh, linguist and philosopher and intellectual. And like, I don't think if I speak to ordinary people about that, their faces are going to light up and they're going to, I mean, I think Chomsky is incredible and really important. But so, you know, I'm aware that there'll be times when I write books, it won't be like this. But no, definitely when you explain some of these things, these incredible things that I learned from these experts about depression, about addiction, about anxiety, and you can just see people come to you and be like, fuck, why didn't, why didn't anyone tell me that before? Mm. It's mm. really exciting. So I think you really get off on, you know, the, the, the excitement of, of feeling you're telling people something important that they should know and that I wish I had known. You know, when I was a 17-year-old and I went to my doctor and explained that I had really bad depression, um, I wish I'd been told all this stuff that I later learned. Actually, I was told, you know, um, a ridiculously oversimplified story, which I'm sure we'll get to. So let's start with your history. So let's give the audience, you know, assuming they know nothing about Johan Harry, what, what's your history before you did your two books? So, uh, well, I'm 
uh, you can tell from my slightly weird name that my parents are immigrants. My uh, my mum and dad met in in London when uh, it's funny. It's maybe weird to call my mother an immigrant. She's Scottish. She regards herself as an immigrant in England, right? The only thing I've ever written that made my mother really genuinely angry was once years ago, I was in New York covering the Republican National Convention. And because of the Sting song, I called myself an Englishman in New York. Okay, nice. And they said, no fucking son of mine. Has <laughs> You've forgotten what they did to Mel Gibson. <laughs> she, she literally thinks that Braveheart is a documentary that was made <laughs> at the time, right? She, even now, she refuses to believe the evidence that Mel Gibson is anti-Semitic. She goes, the English have planted this, right? Like, <laughs> Even Mel Gibson himself admits it, which is the English have made him say that. So they, they, my mum and dad lived next door to each other in Notting Hill when it was a right shithole. And um, they didn't, my mother didn't speak any, uh, my dad was from, my dad had run away from Switzerland. My dad didn't speak any English and my mum didn't speak any French or German. And they had what my mother calls a series of one night stands, which I've tried to explain as a concept that does not make sense. And... Uh, she got pregnant. They thought they had to get married. And uh, she often bursts into tears and says, he seemed so nice when I couldn't understand what he was <laughs> Anyway, they're still together 50 years later. I, me and my brother and sister are the, the product. So, yeah, I, I grew up in London. That They moved around quite a lot before I was born. But they, um, they, they, my dad was a, a cook and my mum was a barmaid. So they worked in different hotels in like crazy places, Iran, Berlin, loads of places. And uh, but I grew up here in London. Um, when I left university, I became um, became a, a journalist, newspaper journalist, and then seven years ago, I started to write these these books that are kind of big, kind of journey books where I kind of go all over the world and try to figure out the answer to these questions that are bothering me. With with chasing the scream, but with the question I wanted to understand was what really causes addiction, uh, and what can we do about it. And with this one, it was really what really causes depression and anxiety, and what can we do about that. What was it like when you brought out Chasing the Scream? Chasing the Scream seems to have been a massively influential book. It's, it's a brilliant book. Um, and um, it's really opened a lot of people's eyes into maybe challenging their thinking in an area that lots of people can be quite set in their ways around. Um, what was it like to bring out a book that could have such an impact? You know, actually, one of the most moving experiences I had was in Australia. The, the, so I think... To me, the most interesting, I'm, I'm always wary when I meet people who write books and they say, and they're the start of writing their book and I say, oh, what's what, what are you writing about? And they know in advance everything they're going to say, right? Unless they're an expert who spent 20 years researching it or something, that's different. But, and I always think for me, I I discover in my books what, what, the, the, my books are the story of the journey of trying to learn about these things. And, you know, sometimes it goes into different alleyways and different directions. So at the start, I didn't really know. No. So one of the reasons I wrote Chasing the Scream is one of my one of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And I didn't understand why. But as I got older, I realized we had addiction in my family. And I wanted to help the people I loved with addiction problems. And I ended up going on this big journey. I didn't realize how big it would be at the start. I ended up going for 30,000 miles and sitting with people whose lives have been changed by addiction and by the war on drugs in really different places, from a transgender crack dealer in Brooklyn whose mother died when he was 13, to a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel, um, to the only place that's ever decriminalized all drugs with incredible results. And one of the big things I learned, and, and it was so exciting with Chasing the Scream to I'd say something that happened in Australia as well, but one of the things that was so exciting to me was realizing 
I had fundamentally misunderstood what addiction was. And actually, I think I only had the kind of, if I hadn't discovered this and seen the consequences of discovering this, I don't think I would have had the confidence to write the book that I've written about depression. Because actually, when I started writing this book about addiction seven years ago, I wanted to write the book about depression first. And I was too frightened to do it. Uh, If you have a story about your pain, even if that story isn't working very well, and my story that depression was just a chemical imbalance in my brain and just needed to be treated with drugs was not working very well for me. But even when it's not working, at least you feel like you know what's going on, right? It's like putting a leash on a wild animal. At least you know where it is. Mm-hmm. And there's something about if your story is threatened, it feels like there's a, the danger that you're letting this, this wild animal off the leash. You're not going to understand what's happening to you about very painful forces in your life. So I was very frightened to do it. It's a sign of how frightened I was to do it. I thought it'd be easier to sp- to write a book that required me to go and spend time with men for the Mexican drug cartel. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I when I went to I went to the Mexico, I spent a lot of time there just after the peak of the violence. But I remember when I went to interview this guy who I write about a lot in Lost Connection in Chasing the Scream, Rosalia Retta, who between the ages of thirteen and seventeen butchered or beheaded seventy people. And I remember on the way in, the prison guard said to me. So obviously we can't leave you on your own with him. He has beheaded 70 people. I was like, oh, good, thanks. And so I sat down with him. And about three minutes in, I turned around. It was fucking, they fucking left me. It was on the way. Wow. Anyway, so you can see I was not beheaded. But um, but no, the, the, so, so with, with Chasing the Scream, just to finish that thing about addiction, <clears throat> what I've learned a huge number of things, but just to give you the, the one example, um, most of us think that addiction, and there's really bad debate about ice in Australia at the moment surrounding this. Most of us think, have a story about addiction that we've been told for 100 years now, right? We think that addiction is caused by the chemical hooks in the drugs themselves, right? So we think if we kidnapped 20 people off the street in Wollongong or Sydney or whatever, and we forcibly injected them all with heroin every day for a month, like some villain in a Saw film, mm-hmm. um, at the end of that, they would all be heroin addicts for a simple reason that there are chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to desperately physically need. And that's what addiction is, right? That's not a totally false story. Chemical hooks do exist. But actually, uh, I, I learned that that story is, uh, that's only a very small part of what's happening. There's a much bigger picture we've missed. For example, in Britain, I'm in London at the moment. If I step out of this interview now and I get hit by a truck and I break my hip, I'll be taken to hospital and I'll be given loads of a drug called diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin. It's much better heroin than I could score it. (laughs) Medically pure, right? If any of your loads of your listeners will have British grandparents, if any of your British grandparents have had a hip replacement operation in Britain, they've taken lots of heroin, right? If what we think about addiction is right, that it's caused by the chemical hooks, what should be happening to all these people in hospitals all over Britain, right? really large numbers of them should be leaving and trying to score on the streets. This has been studied, it virtually never happens, right? And when I learned that, it just seemed so weird. I didn't really understand it until I went to Vancouver and met an incredible man called Bruce Alexander. And I think the insight I learned from him really helped me to understand something different about depression as well. So Professor Alexander explained to me, the story about addiction we've got that it's caused by chemical hooks comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century, right? They're really simple experiments. Um, your viewers, your listeners can try them at home if they want. You take a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water. The other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. There you go. That's our story, right? But in the 70s, Professor Alexander came along and said, well, hang on a minute. We're putting this rat alone in an empty cage 
which got nothing to do except use these drugs. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like heaven for rats, right? They've got loads of friends, they can have loads of sex, they've got loads of cheese, they've got colored balls, anything a rat wants in life, right? And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. But this is the fascinating thing, they try them both. In Rat Park, they don't use the drugged water very much. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So when they don't have the things that make life meaningful, they compulsively use the drug and kill themselves. When they do have the things that make life meaningful, they don't find the idea of being out of it all the time very appealing. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And that led to, so learning that led me to go to the places that actually built drug policies based on these insights, right? That instead of trying to fuck up the lives of people with addiction problems, we should love them and change their environment and help them turn their lives around. And the results have been absolutely incredible. Since Switzerland adopted a drug policy based on that, they have had they legalized heroin for people with addicts, for people with addictions. Um, since then, they have had zero heroin overdose deaths in 13 wow. years. Program, right? Um, so anyway, that, and I think the reason I mentioned this in relation to my new book, Lost Connections, I mean, there's lots of connections, if you'll excuse the pun, because we're talking about connection. But um, uh, I think what it gave me the confidence to see was, okay, I'd realized if you go into if you go into the world of addiction, if you look at the best science, if you go to the places that have learned the lessons of the best science, you will see different ways of thinking and doing things, even though it can be painful to make that adjustment to thinking differently. And therefore, and that opens up very different solutions, ones that actually work. And I think that gave me the confidence to think, well, maybe if I do the same thing with depression, I will also find things that I should know and that will open up different kinds of solutions for me. Do you know what I mean, Bevan? Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. It, um, it, it's allowed you to kind of challenge and see how you can shift the perception of the world. You know, that's really, it, it's, it's locked in its way in so many ways, I suppose, is what we're saying. Yeah. And I think the, the thing about Australia, I mean, I was totally fascinated when I came to Australia and I'm really interested in the Australian drug debate and there's some absolute heroes in Australia who've been fighting on this. I'd really recommend people look up and follow on Twitter, Dr. Alex Wodak, who's one of the great heroes in the world of um, the uh, resisting the drug work. I can tell you why in a minute, but the, in fact, I'll tell you why now, because I think people should totally celebrate Alex. Every Australian, there should be building statues of Alex, right? So very early in the AIDS crisis, um, when we didn't even really know partly what was going on, Alex was a doctor in King's Cross in Sydney. And um, they kind of clocked quite early, okay, so this is transmitted in blood and semen. So they, they knew quite early on, okay, with gay men, we know what to do. Uh, we distribute condoms and all that. Alex was really involved in that. But with people with addiction problems, particularly, obviously, injecting drug users, uh, Alex could just see, okay, this is going to rip through people injecting drug users it's going to be an absolute horror show mm-hmm. um and that's devastating for them and it's devastating for the wider population because obviously that becomes then a way it's transmitted into the wider population because intravenous drug users have sex with people who aren't intravenous drug users um and so alex pioneered at the same time some people were doing it in the netherlands alex pioneered this really important thing he said we should distribute clean needles to people with addiction problems injecting drug users and we need to tell them that they need to use these clean needles, right? Mm. And at the time, so they started doing it. So they completely went rogue. They just started doing it because he's like, this is a crisis. People are going to die. Huge numbers of people are going to die. We have to do this. And the police called Alex in and they were like, you've got to stop doing this. There were laws at the time against what were called a drug paraphernalia, right? So you weren't allowed to give people anything that would help. help. So Alex is called in. The police said, stop doing this. He's like, no. I'm saving these people's lives. I will continue doing this. It carries on doing it. It starts to spread. He's called in by the government minister 
the health minister at the time, who says, stop doing this. This is immoral. This is unethical. Stop doing it. And he said, no, if you want, prosecute me under these laws. Put me before a jury of 12 ordinary Australians. I will explain to them what I'm doing. And if they judge me to have you know, done something unethical, I'll go to prison. But I'm going to do this. When he left the meeting in the elevator with him, one of the public, main public health advisors in Australia got in and he just leaned forward to Alex and he said, whatever you do, don't stop. Wow. Right. And as a result of Alex's courage, needle exchange spread throughout Australia. This is one of the places where it established for the whole world that this worked incalculable number of people's lives, not just in Australia, but across the world, were saved by the courage he showed and his colleagues and, and the nurses and doctors he was working with. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we saved so many people's lives all over the world, because that that proved that it worked, right? What happened in, in King's Cross and in the Netherlands proved that this strategy worked. And that's so, I mean, he's just, he's a, he, I mean, and he now does this incredible work in Australia with um, uh drug testing at music festivals he's again at the absolute cutting edge yeah. of this um you know again you know we can do a sensible thing that will save loads of people's lives or we can just say that people with who are drug users should just die right that's basically the choice and um so alex is yeah everyone should follow alex on twitter and just and give him loads of love and praise because he's an amazing person well i think there's an important point here is that like you know if we look at the work you've done you've really tried to challenge the stories as you talk about you know the, you know what's the story that's influenced the decisions we've made that has got to, to where we are right now and and the drug case is a really good example because you know we're not in a good place in how we've responded to drugs and if in any ways we've the way we've responded has had a, a really negative effect on societies and homes and communities and so on. And unless we can change the problem we're trying to fix, we're going to end up on the same path. And, you know, and so for drugs and for depression, this is this is a huge problem. We've got, you know, we've got to make sure we're pointing the light at the right problem, don't we? That's a really good way of putting it. It's about reframing the problem. Mm. And when you and for depression, this was this was a very difficult thing for me to think about because you know, when I was a teenager, I'd gone to my doctor, I'd said that I had this feeling like pain was kind of bleeding out of me, I couldn't control it or regulate it, I felt very embarrassed about it. And my doctor told me a story about why I felt this way, right? He said, there's a chemical in people's brains called serotonin, makes them feel good. Some people naturally lack that chemical, you're clearly one of them. Solution is that we just need to drug you, right? So they gave me, um, it's called Siroxat or Paxil, it's marketed into different names. Um, and they gave me this drug. And I felt a tremendous amount of relief to be given that story. And when I started taking the drugs, I felt an enormous boost. And within a couple of months, this feeling of acute pain started to kind of bleed back through. So I went back to the doctor. They gave me a higher dose. Um, again, I felt better. Again, the sense of pain came back a little while later. Again, he gave me a higher dose. So basically in that cycle, until for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose and experienced a lot of side effects huge weight gain for example um and at the end of those 13 years there were these two mysteries that were really haunting me which i wanted which and lost connections is really a story of me trying to understand find the answer to these mysteries one was why am i still depressed right i'm doing everything that i'm being told to do according to this story but the second was why are there so many other people like me i'm 39 years old Every year I have been alive, depression and anxiety have risen across the Western world, right? I think, well, what's going on here? It can't just be something malfunctioning in our brains, because why would it be rising so much, right? There must be something else going on. So for Lost Connections, I ended up going on this big journey from Sydney to Sao Paulo to San Francisco. Um, 
really want to meet the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. And just people have very different perspectives on this. I went to an an Amish village in Indiana because the Amish have very low levels of depression. I wanted to figure out why. A city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that would make people feel better. Um, To a subject I know you care about uh, and I care about, a, a lab in Baltimore where they were giving people psychedelics to see if that would make them feel better. And I think... I learned so many things. Um, partly, part of what I learned is I realised until until I was a te- until I went to my doctor when I was a teenager, I thought depression was all in my head, meaning I just needed to man up. It was imaginary. I was just being weak, right? I don't think the phrase "man up" existed then, but that sense, right? Uh, second, and then for the next thirteen years, I thought depression was all in my head, meaning it was just a chemical imbalance in my brain, right? And actually what I learned is there are real biological factors that make you more sensitive to depression that I write about in the book. But actually, mainly, the causes are not in our heads. Mainly they're in the way we're living. I learned there are nine causes of depression and anxiety for which there is scientific evidence. Two of them are biological and very real. But the other seven are factors in our social world, the way we live, and our psychology, the way we think about ourselves and our thoughts. And that opens up a very different way of of thinking about solutions. It means we have to expand the menu of options for thinking about how we respond. Now, of course, chemical antidepressants should remain on the menu and we can talk about their effects if you want. Um, but, but that opens up just a very different way of thinking about the, the what the problem is and how we solve it. Well, in your book, you talk quite, quite it's quite a powerful moment where you talk about how, the you know, how grieving's being treated as depression or, or how depression's kind of being labeled as everything really. If, if there's a problem, you're depressed. And uh, you talked about, I can't remember, was it like a nine-step process that a doctor will go through to assess depression? And maybe expand on that a little bit, because it's quite mind-blowing. When I was listening to it, you almost get a little bit angry. uh, There's a frustration as a consumer of the content when you're listening to that. Yeah, this really shocked me. So in the 1970s, this thing was discovered by accident about depression that was so explosive that it was deliberately swept onto the carpet. So... The American Psychiatric Association, the main body of psychiatrists in the US, decided quite sensibly that they were going to standardize how depression was was um, diagnosed in the US. Right. So up to then, doctors just basically used whatever, you know, they just it was like an impressionistic thing. They just, you know, they used their own judgment or they thought you were depressed or not. So the APA decided they're going to drop a checklist. Uh, the doctors could use. So what they did is they, they dropped a checklist of 10 symptoms, which are kind of obvious things, you know, crying a lot, feeling worthless and so on. And they said to doctors, if your patients show more than five of these 10 symptoms for more than two weeks, you should diagnose them as depressed, mentally ill and do what you can to help them. Right. So this mm-hmm. list is sent out to psychiatrists all over the US and they start using it and doctors, just general practitioners. But within a few months, they start to come back and go, got a bit of a problem here if we use this checklist the way you've said we should diagnose every grieving person as mentally ill because if you lose someone you love you basically respond this way right and the apa were like oh shit we didn't mean that right that's not it so they got back together and they invented something they called the grief loophole right or they didn't call it that other people called it that the grief loophole which basically said okay use this checklist to diagnose someone as depressed unless they've lost someone they love in the past year in which case, it doesn't count. This is a normal reaction to something bad happening. They're not mentally ill. It's, it's okay, right? And then psychiatrists started using that guidance. But that started to beg a really kind of awkward question, right? Where they go, well, hang on a minute. 
we're meant to tell our patients depression is just a brain disease and we just identify it using a checklist. Except there's one situation where actually that doesn't apply and this is a perfectly understandable response. Well, hang on, why is that the only situation? Why is someone you love dying the only situation where you're not mad if you feel this way? What if you've lost your job? What if you've lost your home? What if you're stuck in a job you hate for the next 40 years, right? There's a whole range of things that you get. But as, as one of the experts on this, um, Dr. Joanne Cassiatore put it to me, once you admit that, once you admit that depression is a response to context and deeper social forces, you just need a whole system overhaul in how we deal with these things, right? Once you start admitting context is the most important thing, well, that blows a hole in the whole system. The system's not designed for that, right? Mm. So as... as um, so what they did, this was such an inconvenient debate, the American Psych um, Psychiatric Association just got rid of the grief loophole. It doesn't exist anymore. So now, as Dr. Ca Dr. Cassatore, who writes about this brilliantly, she, she lost her own baby um, in childbirth, tragically, her daughter, Cheyenne. Um, and, and she now works with survivors of traumatic grief. And she says, you know, now, because they got rid of the grief, grief loophole, you can be diagnosed immediately when your child dies. If you're and in fact, 9% of parents who lose a child are diagnosed and drugged in the first 48 hours. Wow. And, and as she put it, that shows we just don't get pain. We don't understand what this is, right? Grief is not a malfunction, right? We grieve because we've loved someone and they're gone. And I think it's really important to understand, and I think it's a coincidence, that grief and depression have the same symptoms. Because in a way, what I think grief is, sorry, what I think depression is, is grief for your own needs not being met, for your own life not going how it should. Actually, I've just realized, so I've just realized I stupidly forgot to plug in my laptop when we started yeah. talking. Can I just grab yeah, it? Yeah, you, you go for it. You go for it. I can pause this. Sorry, I've had to plug this in. I want to keep hearing you, so I'm, I'm quite happy for you to grab the power. <laughs> Great. Uh, let me just... Oh, that's not going to reach. Will that reach? Really? Let's see. Yeah, that reaches. Um, yeah, so I'm ready to start. I've just I've got to pick yeah, up from that. I can, I, can, I can edit that. It's all good. So everyone listening to this show knows that they have natural physical needs, obviously, right? You need food. You need water. You need shelter. You need clean air. If I took them away from you, you would be in terrible trouble really quickly. There's, there's equally strong evidence that human beings have natural psychological needs, right? You've got to feel you belong. You've got to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You've got to feel that people see you and value you. You've got to have autonomy. You've got to have a sense of the future that makes sense to you, right? And our culture is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today. But there's really good evidence that we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs that people have. And that is what, it's not the only thing that's going on here, but that is one of the big drivers of our crisis in depression, anxiety, and addiction. That, that if you're living in a culture that doesn't meet people's needs, where it doesn't fit with our human nature, and I can talk about some of the very specific ways that that's happening. You know, if you have a society of people who are profoundly lonely, who've been taught that life is about money and status, who, who think that life is about screaming at each other through screens, that's a society that's gonna have a depression and anxiety crisis for a really good reason, right? That's not what you need as a human being. That's not meeting your deeper needs. And if you then tell those people that actually the reason they feel so shit is just because they've got a chemical imbalance in their brain, 
it prevents the society from understanding why we have this crisis in the first place. And it prevents us from finding the solutions to those deeper problems. Mm, yeah, I, I love the analogy you do of that, that grieving is, is or, or depression is grieving for the things that are fundamentally important to us. And um, that's a really good way of kind of putting it. So you're saying there are deeper things that society is pushing us towards. Do you want to dig a bit deeper into that? Yeah, so I talk about these nine causes of depression and anxiety for which I could find evidence. And um, so I'll give you, give you um, a couple of examples that I think will just immediately, people will just know this in their lives or in people they know, certainly. So I noticed that lots of the people I know who are depressed and anxious, their depression and anxiety focuses around their work. Mm-hmm. So I started to look mm-hmm. at what's the evidence about how, how people feel about their work, right? And... Um, I was quite struck by it. So Gallup did the most detailed study of this uh, in uh, Britain, the US, Australia, most developed countries, took two years to do this study. What they found is 13% of us, one, 3%, like our jobs most of the time. 13. Wow. 60, I know, I know, it gets worse. 63% of people are what they call sleepwalking through their work. So they don't like it, they don't hate it, they just kind of tolerate it. And 24% of people fucking hate and fear their jobs, wow. right? So I was like, what? that means 87% of people don't like the thing they're doing most of their waking life. You're almost twice as likely to hate your job as like it. Right? I was like, whoa, could that be having some effect on our mental health, right? Yeah. Especially since the thing that we don't want to do is expanding over more and more of our lives. The average person now answers their first work email at 7.48 a.m. and leaves work at 7.15 p.m., right? This is most of our lives, right? So... I started to look for evidence and I discovered this absolutely another amazing Australian uh, social scientist professor called Michael Marmot had discovered in the 1970s what causes depression at work. I can tell you how if you want. I tell the story in the book because the story of how he discovered it is really important. It helps us to understand what's going on for us. But I'll just give you the headline. The biggest factor, not the only one he discovered, but the biggest factor is if you go to work tomorrow and you feel controlled, so you have low or no choices you are much more likely to become depressed. You're also actually much more likely to have a heart attack, right? And because uh, you're flooded with stress. And 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 I think that connects to, I'm going a little bit beyond what Professor Marmot would say about this now, but I think that connects to what we're saying about psychological needs, right? People need to feel their lives have meaning and purpose. And if you're controlled all the time, it's hard to feel that your life has meaning and purpose, right? Um, and, and, and I learned that there are solutions to that. Now, I, I, I misunderstood what Professor Marmot was telling me at first, right? I thought he was saying, okay, so you've got this 13% elite at the top who have nice lives and nice jobs, and they're going to, you know, they're going to be happy, and everyone else is condemned to the shit, right? And I thought about, you know, my dad was a bus cook and then a bus driver, my, my brother's a delivery guy, my mother was a barmaid, then worked in a shelter. You know, I was like, wait, are we saying that they're just condemned to have, to be depressed, right? And he said to me, you know, you don't understand. It's not the work that makes you depressed. It's being controlled at work. Mm-hmm. And it turns out there's a different set of solutions to that. So in Baltimore, I went and met a really interesting person called Meredith Keogh. Meredith had been working. Well, Meredith used to go to bed every Sunday night, just sick with anxiety, right? She had an office job. It wasn't the worst office job in the world, as she explained. You know, she wasn't being bullied or harassed. But it was really monotonous and she just couldn't stand the thought this was going to be the next 40 years of her life in this fucking office just being bored, right? So with her husband, Josh, one day, she did this quite bold thing. Meredith, um, so Josh had worked in bike stores since he was a kid in Baltimore. And, you know, that's very controlled work. It's 
pretty insecure work. Um, and one day Josh and his colleagues in the bike store had just said, what does our boss actually do? Right? They liked their boss, but they were like, we seem to fix all the bikes and he seems to make all the money, right? What's going on here? <laughs> decided they were going to set up a, a bike store that ran on a different principle. So the bike store they'd worked in before and the office Meredith had worked in before were corporations, right? So you have a boss at the top who gives orders to everyone below like it's an army, right? What they set up was a store that works in a different way. It's a democratic cooperative. So that means they don't have a boss. They make all the decisions together by voting, big important decisions. They share out the shitty tasks and the better tasks. So no one gets stuck with just the shitty tasks. They, of course, share the profits. What was so fascinating going and spending time with them was how many of them explained that they use, this is totally in finding with Professor Marmot's science, how many of them used to be depressed and anxious when they were controlled, but in this new environment were not depressed and anxious most of the time, right? Now, it's important to say, it's not like, you know, they used to fix bikes and now they've gone off to become Beyonce's backing singers, right? They fix bikes before they fix bikes now. The difference is the factor that makes people depressed, which is being controlled, right? And you can, as Josh put it to me, there's no reason why any business should be run in this way that causes depression, right? Imagine how many people you know who are currently depressed and anxious would feel very differently if they knew that tomorrow they were going into a workplace where with their colleagues, they set the priorities, they figured out how things should be. If there is a boss, he's elected by them, accountable to them, uh, where they get a share of the profits rather than, and you can see how that's a very different way of being, right? One that it taps much more into human creativity, our need for control, our need to, you know, to control our environment. It's like taking the rat out of that first isolated cage and putting them into rat park, right? Um, and and so that's one of the kind of um, nine causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections, which open up a very different kind of set of solutions. Now, that's one of the very big solutions that requires a, a big fight. There are kind of some that have, you know, solutions that are more amenable to people trying them in their everyday life more directly. But, but you can see how, again, imagine saying to, I think about how many people I know who are stuck in jobs through no fault of their own, um, jobs that are very controlled, and who are depressed and have gone to their doctor and been told, you know what, this is just a chemical imbalance in your brain, right? Lacking serotonin. Actually, it's migrated now. Now they say you lack dopamine, right? Um, and you think about how ridiculously simplistic that is. It's not that there's no truth in that. There are real brain changes that happen when you're depressed, of course. Some of those real brain changes make it harder to get out of depression. I write about how in, in Lost Connections. But, but we've been told this, this ludicrously simplistic idea. And actually, in a way, partly what I'm trying to do in Lost Connections is restore to people things that at some level they already know, right? Not everything in the book is something you'll already know, obviously, and there's lots of detail and lots of solutions they might not know. But pretty much everyone is, if you're stuck in a job you can't stand, are you more likely to be depressed, right? It's not, you don't have to be Einstein to figure out the answer to that, right? <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, it's also really interesting when we think about the modern time, because, you know, you say that, you know, 67% or 77% of people don't really like what they do. Um, when we think about that, we also are spending more time in work, so we're more time poor. So then when we have time, like one of the disconnections is disconnection to other people. You talk about a lot in the book. And I, I have a running business, business Johan, and, and we really try to target beginner exercises. It's, it's our real big target market. Um, and... We want we want them to run, so we we set them this goal of running five k's, and we kind of build them towards, you know, how do you take someone who's really insecure in one area of their life, and have a history of proof of failure? How do you make that person win? And it's a real it's a real kind of 
question we've put a lot of thought into and we really we do lots of things so we socially manipulate them so that they make friends in the group and all these types of things but one thing we discover is that the, so many of them come up to us and say I was depressed before I joined and this has really helped my depression now we can point and say well exercise is really good for them but Actually, one of the things that comes through is they build friendships around a healthy endeavor. But if we look at what's happening in work life is we're working more. So time for social is one of the things that gets really neglected. And when they join our group, suddenly they've, you know, we've, we've created a world where they actually want to turn up, which is really important. But actually we're building friendships and they don't really understand why that's important for a journey. But nowadays, that's it. Like, you know, I'm not a religious person, but one of the downfalls of the modern, the loss of the church is the loss of the community. Um, you know, the church was good at community. And in New Zealand, for example, the church influence is very much gone. It's, it's very much a niche thing now. But we haven't replaced it with sense of community. And it's one of the problems, because we're working so much, we are losing those connections and because we think we need to chase things like money and status and all those types of things. And you and you talk about that loss of connection to other people, and I imagine it, there's, there's almost this interweb, isn't there, of it's so obvious why we're pushing to people towards depression. Yeah, you put that so well, and there's so many things in that that I, I have thoughts about and that I learned stuff about. And actually, Australia is really quite an extreme example on this about the loss of social connections, and it's one of the reasons why Australia has the highest um, number of prescriptions of antidepressants, chemical really? antidepressants in the whole world. After Iceland, wow. you're number two in the world per capita. And um, yeah, the, the loneliness thing, you know, there's this amazing study in the US. It's a really simple study. Just ask Americans, how many close friends do you have you can call on in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Now, the most common answer, it's not the average, but the most common answer is none. Wow. Right? That, that's People, sad when you hear that. Like, it's, it's horrible. Yeah, it catches your heart, doesn't oh, it? God. And think about, it's funny I've been thinking about this today because, very sadly, the, um, one of the great scientists who made a lot of breakthroughs about this, who I interviewed a lot for Lost Connections, actually died yesterday. So there was this amazing man called Professor John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago, who I interviewed a lot, who was the leading expert on loneliness. And he discovered loads of things. So when we're stressed, we get flooded with a, a hormone called cortisol. Um, and what he, one of the things he showed, and he made so many amazing experiments, is he showed that being acutely lonely releases as much cortisol as being punched in the face by a stranger. Wow. Right? Explain to me the, the, you know, one of the reasons for this is, you think about the circumstances where we evolved, right? Why are you and me alive, Bevan? One of the reasons we're alive is because our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down. They weren't stronger than the animals they took down, but they were much better at cooperating. They were much better at banding together into tribes and working together. And every instinct human beings have is to do that, right? If you think about the circumstances where we evolved, if you were separated from the tribe, you were depressed and anxious for a really fucking good reason. You were about to die, right? You were in terrible danger, right? So you can see why that would be as stressful as being punched in the face, right? Mm. Um, and, 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 and we are the first humans ever to disband our tribes, right? It's, it's profoundly unnatural what we've done. We imagine that we can live alone. We tell ourselves stories that we can live alone. And we tell ourselves we can even raise children alone, which is remarkable. It's a study in Britain that found the average British child now spends less time outdoors than the average maximum security prisoner. Really? Because 
or a maximum security prisoner has to have 70 minutes a day and our kids don't get that because people are afraid to let their kids go out because they don't know who's on the street right? they don't have a community right it's it's it you can see how these these things feed feed off each other but and i think you're totally right and i think that the work that you do which is really important there's a there's a really interesting program that i think gives gives a lot of scientific backing to what you're to what you're saying so there was this one of the heroes of my book lost connections is this wonderful guy called sam everington he's a doctor in east london where i lived for a really long time sadly he was never my doctor this is in a poor part of east london and He's a general practitioner. Loads of patients were coming to him, as you can imagine, with depression and anxiety. And Sam was really uncomfortable because, like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks they do have some role. But he just thought, this isn't solving the reasons why they're depressed and anxious in the first place, right? Which is why it has quite a limited effect. So one day he decided to do this experiment. A woman came to see him called Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know quite well. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with absolutely crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. And he said to Lisa, Look, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you the drugs. But I'm also going to prescribe something else. I'm going to prescribe for you to take part in a group. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was they called Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. It backed onto a park, but basically dogs would go and shit in it. And he said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is turn up twice a week with a group of other depressed and anxious people. I'll come and support you. And we're going to turn Dog Shit Alley into a beautiful garden. Right? First time first meeting, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety, right? But they started to get to know each other. One of the interesting things is, and this would be true of your fitness program as well, um, they had something to talk about that wasn't how shit they felt, right? So much of the how we, basically we offer depressed and anxious people two things, drugs, or you can go and talk to someone about how terrible you feel, right? But what they had was actually they could start to learn about gardening, right? None of them, they were in the city, East London, they anything about gardening. They started to put their, literally put their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's lots of evidence that exposure to the natural world, even gardens, is a very powerful antidepressant. Well, the same with running, because you get people in nature, you know, like we, we get people running in nature and suddenly, you know, they, you talk about na- the importance of nature in the book. It's a similar thing, you know, suddenly people, we take them to these runs and they go, oh my God, you know, and it's right there, but they don't use it, you know. But anyway, sorry, keep going. No, no, totally. I think it's really important. And actually, one of the experts I interviewed, an amazing woman called Dr. Isabel Benke, who you should totally have on your podcast. You'd love her. Um, she said, you know, a, a, a human animal that's not moving through its natural habitat cannot be a healthy human being, right? Um, and, 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 and so several things happened in this group, right? One of them was, as they got to know each other, um, the people in the group started to do what human beings do when we know each other and care about each other. They started to solve each other's problems, right? So to give an extreme example, one of the guys in the group was sleeping on the bus, the local public bus, right? Lisa was, Lisa and the other people in the group were like, well, of course you're depressed if you're sleeping on a bus, mate. You know, they started pressuring the local authority to get him housed and they succeeded. It was the first time they'd done something for someone else in years. They felt great, right? And there's lots of evidence doing something for someone else is a much more powerful antidepressant than do something for yourself. And they, they start to learn this garden, the garden starts to bloom, people start congratulating them on how beautiful the garden is. Um, and the way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. Now, there was a, a study in Norway of a very similar program that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for a kind of obvious reason. It's dealing with the reasons why they were so depressed in the first place. Two of the reasons. They were disconnected from other people. They were disconnected from the natural world. And this is one thing I saw everywhere in the world that I went. 
the, the solutions that worked best were the ones that dealt with the reasons why people felt so bad in the first place, right? Those are, I think we need to expand our idea of what an antidepressant is. And one of the people who helped me to realize this, it was, um, it's funny, uh, it, this story really struck me at the time. I went to interview this South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield, who happened to be in Cambodia when chemical antidepressants were first introduced there in 2001. And the Cambodian doctors hadn't heard of these drugs. So they were like, what are they? And Derek explained, and they were like, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine and got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial leg and he went back to work in the fields. But apparently it's incredibly painful to work underwater with an artificial limb. And I imagine it was pretty fucking traumatic because in the field it was blown up, right? So he started, <laughs> it's not rocket science, is it? He started, doesn't want to get out of bed, classic depression, right? So they said to Derek, we gave him an antidepressant. He said, what was it? They explained they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense, right? It wasn't some malfunction. Um, they figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this environment that was making him so distressed. They bought him a cow. Within a month, he'd stopped crying. He was absolutely fine. His depression was gone. They said to Derek, so you see, doctor, that cow was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, what that sounds, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that it's just a problem in your skull, that sounds like a bad joke. I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. He gave me a cow, right? But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the World Health Organization, the leading body, medical body in the world, has been trying to tell us for years. Your pain makes sense. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not crazy. You're not a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs and you need love and support to get those deeper needs met. Now that is what, how we should think about an antidepressant, right? Alongside chemical antidepressants, it's about expanding the menu, not taking anything off the menu. And I thought about that. And another example of that, that I think was really relevant to what you were saying about your, your fitness group, that partly we don't have the time to do this, right? Yeah. That it's very, you can say to someone, you know, so for example, one of my closest relatives, you know, is a struggling single mother who works every hour she can. She gets home at eight o'clock at night, absolutely exhausted, too tired to even watch Coronation Street or cook something for herself, right? Um, now you can say to her, hey, your job is to democratize your workplace and reconnect with her. I mean, it's, it would just be cruel, right? Yeah. I mean, she can't, she literally can't do that, right? So it's interesting to look at, well, what antidepressants can give people back time? And there's a really interesting experiment that did this in Canada in the 1970s that had really interesting results. So the Canadian government in the 1970s chose a town at random. They appear to have genuinely put a pin in the map, right? And they chose a town called Dauphin in Manitoba. Uh, people who know Canada, it's about four hours out of Winnipeg. It's quite a rural town. And they said to loads of people in this town, from now on, we're going to give all of you a guaranteed basic income. It was the equivalent of 12,000 US dollars in today's money. I, I'm terrible at Australian money. What's that in Australian? Yeah, yeah, probably 20,000, 20, something like that. Yeah. Right, 20 grand in Australian money yeah. in today's money. So adjusted for inflation. Mm -hmm. They said to them, you have to do anything in return for this. Um, and there's nothing you can do that means we're going to take it away. We just want you to have a good life, right? So they give them this money in monthly installments. And it was monitored by this brilliant scientist I interviewed called Dr. Evelyn Forget to figure out well, what would happen, right? Loads of interesting things happened. Um, people spent more time with their children. People spent more time studying. Nobody gave up work, but what some people did is hold out for better jobs so they didn't feel pressured to accept any job that came along. So work standards overall rose. 
But the biggest and most important thing, there was a huge fall in mental health problems. Mm. Mental health problems that were so severe people had to be shut away in hospital fell by 9% in just three years, right? Mm. And, and I think that, and again, Dr. Forger, who did the research, they said to me, this program was an antidepressant, right? Um, and I think that tells us something really profound and important. Um, it, partly it tells us that financial insecurity causes depression and anxiety. And again, you realize how disgusting it is to just tell people it's a chemical imbalance in their brains, right? This is partly why the UN's leading doctor on World Health Day last year said we need to talk less about chemical imbalances, more about power imbalances, right? But, um, but, but, but even more importantly, I think it speaks to the people in your program and a lot of people who would really benefit from your program who just, like my relative, who's just too exhausted to do it, Twelve grand, $12,000 a year would give her the cushion to do that, right? Yeah. That she does not have at the moment. It would give people a margin to begin to change their lives that we can't, that we don't have at the moment, right? There's lots of reasons why I think a universal basic income reduces um, mental health problems and has lots of other positive benefits, but that's one of them. This is why President Obama in his... Um, Someone pointed out to me in all my interviews, I say President Obama and I never say President Trump. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> the last days of his um, term said, you know, he thinks a universal basic income will have to be introduced in the next 20 years, partly to deal with the huge dislocation that's going to come through technology, disrupting so many jobs and making jobs so insecure. And, and, and I think this is a way of giving people back a sense of the future. It's interesting. I interviewed a guy called Richard Dennis, who wrote the book on effluenza a couple, couple episodes ago. And, and it's just how this is all interlinked, you know, that kind of what are we chasing as a society? And he was a really big advocate. As you increase wealth, why take wealth? Why not get time? You know, and, and then to lead on to what you're saying there is, you know, if we, if we aren't chasing the material thing that ultimately just creates dissatisfaction, and we creating a life that's around what was really fulfilling to us in our community and, you know, the connections you talk about, you know, sure, there's an aspect of, of the people who are just struggling so much, they need to get that security. But many of us are chasing the wrong thing. And influenza is that kind of idea that my value is based on what I own. You know, if, if you still were to say, well, actually, if I were to work, you know, instead of getting a pay rise, give me an extra day of work each week, it's, I know the universal basic income is going to be potentially quite powerful but also our approach to what our, we're chasing in life is really important as well yeah this is one of the things i found most challenging in the research for the book because i realized how much it had played out in my own life um so everyone knows that junk food has taken over our you know diets and made us physically sick right i say this with no sense of superiority i spent 10 years living on kfc basically your story um, in the book about how they give you a, a like a present for being the best, best user that was quite funny it was a bleak day in my life. <laughs> he gave me a massive Christmas card addressed to our best customer. Uh, and, yeah, and recently, I don't know if this reported in Australia, but we recently had a KFC shortage in yeah, Britain. Yeah, we did see that, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And um, although I haven't eaten at KFC in years because I changed my diet, but um, loads of people who haven't seen me in a while text me saying, Johan, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but no, the... the but, but what's fascinating is, so we know junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick. What's interesting is the kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. Mm. For thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and how you look to other people, you're going to feel like shit, right? It's not an exact quote from Confucius, but it's the gist of what he said, right? Um, but weirdly, no one had scientifically investigated this until this amazing man I got to know, Professor Tim Kasser, who's at Knox College in Illinois. And... He did this really important research, started 25 years ago, 
it's now an extraordinary body of research. So, um, which shows the more you think life is about money and the more you think life is about how you look to other people, the more depressed you will become, the more anxious you will become, uh, and the worse you will, actually worse your overall health will be, right? You even experience pain more intensely. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. Um, so he partly explains that there's, um, every everyone listening to this, everyone, we're all humans, are a mixture of two kinds of motivation, right? To put it crudely. So imagine you play the piano in the morning. I'm totally unmusical, but maybe you're not. I, I play if piano, you, so there you go. Every day, I love oh, it. Yeah. yeah. If you play the piano in the morning because you love it and it gives you joy, that's called an intrinsic reason to play the piano, right? You're not doing it to get anything out of it. You're just doing it because you love it. It gives you joy. It's you want to be in that moment, right? If you play, now imagine you played the piano, I don't know, not 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 because you love it, but because your parents were really pressuring you to be a piano maestro and that was their dream, not yours. Or you play it in a dive bar that you hate just to pay the rent and you can't stand it. Or I don't know, to impress a woman, maybe there's some piano fetishist out there, like I'd be really into that. Yeah, that would be an extrinsic reason to play the piano, right? You're not doing it for something you get, for the joy of the moment, you're doing it for something you get out of it, right? Mm-hmm. And we're all a mixture of intrinsic and extrinsic motives, obviously, uh, and, and we vary throughout our lives. But Professor Kassler showed two things. The more your life becomes dominated by extrinsic values, the more anxious and depressed you'll become. And as a culture, we have become much more driven by extrinsic junk values. Right? Think of junk values like, uh, the idea that you should live your life according to how you look to other people and how much money you've got, I think is like kind of KFC for the soul, right? It's made us mentally unwell. And he shows lots of reasons why this is the case. And I go through them in Lost Connections. I'll give you two, two examples. One is the more you're driven by junk values, um, the less you experience something that really gives people joy. So one of the things that, that most gives humans joy and most relieves unhappiness and depression are what are called flow states, right? Yeah. So there are moments when, for me, it's writing. For you, I imagine it's running and the yeah, piano, yeah. as you can see, my lack of cheekbones, it's definitely not running for me. Um, the, um, which is a moment when you're doing something you love and you just you get into the zone and you're just flowing into it and time seems to fall away and you're just in it, right? Yeah. That's, that's a flow state. People who are more driven by extrinsic values experience a lot fewer flow states, right? And you can see why. So imagine you're in your mode where you're playing the piano in the morning and you're loving it and then suddenly you think, Am I the best piano player in Christchurch today, right? Uh, How do I compare to all the other piano players? How much am I going to get paid for this fucking piano playing, right? You can see how that would jolt you out of the flow state. That would be, you'd be suddenly in an extrinsic mode. How do I seem to other people, right? How is the Instagram video of me playing this piano going to look, right? You can see how it would jolt you out of it. Um, So that's partly one of the reasons why, why it makes people feel so much worse. Another is it actually leads to poorer quality relationships, so I'll give you an example. I need to check the exact wording of this, but uh, and it sounds like I'm making a dig. I don't mean this is a, a dig, but in 2009, Melania Trump went to speak at NYU to the students there. And one of the students asked her something like, would you have married Donald Trump if he wasn't rich? And she replied, do you think he would have married me if I wasn't beautiful? Mm. Right. Think about what that means about their relationship. It shows how much it's motivated by extrinsic. And think about how that makes that relationship more insecure. So Melania Trump knows if she got fat, it's over, right? Donald Trump knows if he ceased to be rich, 
is over. Yeah. You can see how that kind of extrinsically motivated relationship would be much more insecure than, say, Barack and Michelle Obama's relationship, who I'm sure would say they and would feel that they would love each other even if they lost all their money and they were living in a shack and would love each other even if one of them got horribly burned in a fire and, you know, uh, looked completely different, right? Yeah. So you can see how that would be more, because that's an intrinsic relationship, it's a more secure relationship. And the more you become extrinsically motivated, the more you judge people by by how they look or what they've got, and the more you expect yourself to be judged by how you look and what you've got, the worse you will feel. So I think it's, again, one of these hidden factors that's driving up depression and anxiety. Well, it's also really fascinating because, you know, one of the ones you talk about is the, this, this idea of a hopeful future, secure future. And there's a lot of people who actually have that already, but because they are chasing the extrinsic values, they think they need more of the thing they've already got. So they're creating a sense of, I am insecure about my future, even though the evidence is probably in front of them proving that they don't need to be. So they're, they're you know, one of the disconnected from proof that actually probably shows them, even if you say, look, look at your finances, you're going to be okay. Um, but because I'm chasing, I need to be with 10 million to be secure in the world, I'm actually, that's actually causing big problems for you as well. Even though, you know, if you look at your life, you're probably fine. Well, we, but I don't think that's a coincidence that people are made to feel like that. We live in a machine that's designed yeah. to feel like that. Yeah. More 18-month-old children recognize the McDonald's M than know their own last name, right? Yeah. So from the moment yeah. you're born, you're immersed in a machine that's telling you through advertising and the wider system, you have got the, the, the you know, advertising is like the ultimate frenemy, right? It's saying to you, oh, babe, I think you're great. I love you. If only you didn't stink so much. I'm just telling <laughs> your friend right yeah and then of course yeah. it's, and, and it's built upon i mean in advertising this is called invented wants right mm. you, you, you have to be making people feel inadequate in order to sell them the solution and you have to keep making them feel inadequate so they keep buying the solution right mm. actually <clears throat> you know sometimes you get an extreme example where dove did, where people it's so extreme that people notice it but most of the time we don't even notice it so for example about 10 years ago dove did a campaign where they said uh uh, we're here to relieve women of their shame of their armpits because your armpits are really wrinkly. Even if you shave them, apparently they're wrinkly and disgusting. And we've invented this new product that will make your armpits smooth, right? And of course, if you'd said to our grandmothers, you know, oh, do you feel ashamed about your armpits? They'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about, right? Like the, you know, and so you can see how that's the creation of, it's pretending to solve, sell you a solution. In fact, yeah. it's selling you a problem yeah. Yeah. that you then have yeah. to solve, right? And um, now that's an extreme example. That was so extreme that a lot of people went, ah, fuck you, I'm perfectly happy with my armpits, right? Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but we don't see that actually we've been made to feel that way the whole time, right? We've been made to, uh, not necessarily with our armpits, but you know, you know that, that wider process is playing out all the time and part of the solution is um is one of the reasons why is sao paulo one of the biggest cities in brazil just banned advertising banned all outdoor mm -hmm. advertising right and it was fascinating going there and how many people talked there have been no good studies of this yet how many people talked about how it had improved their mental state right and it was interesting professor Casa has shown with a, another social scientist going to be called jill twenge um that um the more the higher uh, am i gonna get this right uh, trying to phrase it the way they did i think this is right the higher the higher a proportion of GDP in the US is spent on advertising, the more, more money gets spent on advertising as a proportion of GDP, the higher the level of anxiety teenagers experience, right? And you can see why, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So again, it's about these deeper things. Now, again, you can see how absurd it would be to say that that is the result of a chemical imbalance in people's brains, right? There are real biological factors, but it's missing the point. 
to say that, right? What we have to do is deal with that. And I go through in the book various ways as a society we can deal with that that problem of, of, of junk values. Unfortunately, actually, um, I have to go in about five minutes. Yeah, but the, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. We can wrap it up. Um, just, just maybe lastly then, um, for those who are listening to this, you know, because the book is so powerful um, and obviously I recommend I've, I've, I've been telling everyone read it even if you're not the press it's a book we all need to read because it also reinforces what you should be putting your focus on in life you know it, in many ways it's a guideline of like it's interesting I spoke to a guy a guy I know really well and he has suffered with depression quite badly and in some areas he's really strong so like meaningful work he's there but then the sense of security in life is you know so in many ways he's pushed himself towards the areas strong and neglecting the other areas but what would be your message for those who are listening today and going oh my god he's talking to me you know what would be because obviously we want to create change um and what would be your message to that person i would tell them a story loads of the things i learned from the book um i learned from these experts and intellectually but there were loads of points where it fell into place for me emotionally. And I would tell them a story about one of the places that happened to me most powerfully. Um, in the summer of 2011, on a big anonymous housing project in Berlin, a Turkish-German woman called Nuria Cengiz climbed out of her wheelchair and put a sign in her window. She lived on the ground floor. And the sign said, I got a notice, something like, I got a notice saying I'm gonna be evicted next Thursday. So on Wednesday night, I'm going to kill myself, right? This was a big housing project where it's a very, it, was a, it had initially been a quite poor and undesirable part of Berlin. It's called Koti. So basically only people who'd lived there for years and years were recent Turkish immigrants, gay people and punk squatters, right? Who you can imagine looked at each other with a lot of mutual incomprehension. And um, no one really knew each other, but people saw this sign and a lot of people were being evicted because the rents had been going up so much. People started to knock on Nuria's door who didn't know her and say, oh, I saw your sign. Do you need any help? And she said, basically, fuck you. I don't want any help. I'm going to kill myself. And one day, um, this was the summer, actually, of the revolution in Egypt. A couple of the, and people have been seeing this on TV. A couple of the guys who lived on the, uh, the, the estate, the housing project, um, got talking and they noticed that so there's this big thoroughfare that runs through this housing project into the center of Berlin, into Mitte. And they were like, if we just blocked the road for a day and we wheeled Nuria out and we sat in the middle and we protested, they'd probably let her stay in her flat. Probably we'd get a bit of political pressure to keep our rents down. Why don't we do it? So they did it. And Nuria was like, well, I'm going to kill myself anyway. I may as well let you wheel me out into the road. <laughs> they got into the road and they protest for a day and the media did come. Uh, and there was a lot, you know, a fair bit of news coverage in Berlin about it. And then at the end of the day, <clears throat> the police came along and basically said, okay, you've had your fun, take it all down. And they were like, well, no, you, you haven't told Nuria she can stay. And actually, we all want a rent freeze because we can't carry on like this. And there's one of my favorite people at Cottis is one called Tanya Gartner, who is, she's one of the punks. She, she wears a tiny miniskirt, even in Berlin winter. She's hardcore. And... Um, Tanya had uh, one of those things um, that make a really loud noise at soccer matches, a klaxon yeah. in her flat. So she brought it down and she said, okay, what we're going to do, we're going to drop a timetable to man this barricade. If the police come to take it down before Nuria is told she can stay, before we've got a rent freeze, let off this klaxon and we'll all come down and stop them, right? So people start signing up to man this barricade. Never met each other, don't know, don't know each other. And really unlikely combination of people. So Nuria, very religious Muslim in a headscarf, 
was paired with Tanya, who's in a tiny little miniskirt, right? I think they did the Thursday night shifts, I remember rightly. And the first few nights they sat there, super awkward, didn't talk to each other very much. As they began to talk to each other, they thought we've got nothing in common, right? They started to talk about their lives. They realized they had a crazy amount in common. Nuria had come to Berlin when she was 17 years old uh, with her two young children. And the point was that she was meant to raise money, uh, enough money to send back for her husband who stayed in their village in Turkey. After she'd been in Germany for a year, she got news from home that her husband had died. So she's stuck on her own in Berlin with these two kids in this country she doesn't really understand. And she told Tanya something she'd never told anyone. She'd always told people her husband died of a heart attack. Actually, he died of tuberculosis, which was regarded as a kind of disease of poverty. She'd been really ashamed of that. Tanya started to tell Nuria about her life. Um, Tanya had been, she'd been thrown out by her middle-class family when she was 15. She'd come to cottage. She'd lived in a squat, kind of punk squat. She got pregnant when she was 15. They realized they'd both been on their own with young children in this place, and they hadn't known each other. Um, and these kind of pairings were happening all over Cotty. So there was a, 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 a young guy called Mehmet who was, I think was 17 at the time. His family were Turkish, kept being nearly thrown out of school. They said he had ADHD. He got paired with this grumpy old German, white German guy who loved Stalin. Um, and, and the old guy started helping him with his homework as they did the, the night shift. Right? And, and these pairings were happening all over, all over, all over Cotty. Opposite the housing project, there's a gay club called Zudblock, which is run by a guy I love called Rickard Stein. Um, to give you a sense of what he's like, his previous, the previous gay place he owned was called Cafe Anal. Right? They are, <laughs> in like, your face, a, in your face. Exactly. And, uh, and initially when they'd opened this gay club, um, you know, you can imagine there's a lot of religious Muslims there that people have been really angry. They'd smashed the windows, some of them. And the people at Zudblock started saying, well, well, they gave loads of furniture to the protest. They started saying you can have your, they, they, they helped build this permanent structure in the middle of the road. And they were like, you can have your meetings in our club if you want. And at first, even the lefties at Cotty were like, we're not going to get these like very religious Muslims in their hijabs to come and sit under a poster for fisting night. It's not going to happen, <laughs> right? But actually, as one of them put it to me, we all took these small steps. We had to learn to talk to each other. Um, after this been going on for about six months, this protest, a guy turned up one day um, called Tunkai. Tunkai was in his early 50s and he's got um, cognitive difficulties, you can tell when you speak to him. And he'd been, clearly been living homeless. He started saying, is there anything I can do to help? And quite quickly, everyone at the protest camp just loved him, right? The, he united the Muslims, the gays and the punks, right? He's just got a great energy to him. And um, he started, because they built this permanent structure, they said, well, why don't you just live here, right? We don't want you to be homeless, why don't you live here? So he lived there, and after he'd been there for about six months, one day the police came to inspect, which they did every now and then. And um, Tunkai doesn't like it when people argue. So he thought the police were arguing, so he went to try to hug them. And they thought he was attacking them, so they arrested him. That was when they discovered that until he made his way to Cotty, Tunkai had been shut away in a psychiatric hospital for 20 years, quite often in a literal padded cell. Um, and so, and he'd been living homeless for a little while and then he found his way to the protest camp. So the police took him back to the psychiatric hospital and suddenly this whole protest movement turns itself into a free Tunkai movement, right? They descend on the psychiatric hospital in the suburbs of Berlin. And these psychiatrists are like, what the fuck is this? There's like 200 people in hijabs, like gays and... and <laughs> give him back right and they're like what's this they don't understand right and i remember uli one of the one of the people the protesters there saying to the psychiatrist you know but he belongs with us right he doesn't belong with you and they eventually got him released 
many things happened at Cotty that I write about in Lost Connections. Um, one of the most important is they got a rent freeze for their entire housing project. They then launched a referendum initiative that got the largest number of written signatures in the history of Berlin, right? Mm. But I remember the last time I saw Nuria, she said to me, you know, I'm really glad I got to stay in my neighborhood. I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by all these amazing people all along and I, and I never knew. And I remember speaking at one point to one of the Turkish German women there, a woman called Neriman, Neriman Manker. And, and she said to me, it really hit me. She said, when I grew up in Turkey, what I called home was my whole village, right? And then I came to live in the Western world and I learned that what you're meant to call home is just your four walls. And then this whole protest began and this whole place became my home. And she said, I realized I had been homeless all this time. I had been living in the West, right? That, you know, and, and, and it really hit me. I began thinking, human, human beings need to feel we belong. And our sense of home in this culture is not big enough for our sense of belonging, right? Mm -hmm. We need to feel we're seen by lots of people. We don't feel that. I thought a lot about Tunkai. I thought, how many of us, if we were carried away and locked away in a circuit, how many of us would have hundreds of people saying, no, he belongs with us, give him back, right? And I think, one of the things I learned at Cotty is these problems that seem insoluble when we are alone and isolated and taught to value bullshit like what we buy become soluble when we're part of a tribe, right? You think about it. These were really serious problems. Uh, Nuria was suicidal, right? Um, Mehmet kept being nearly thrown out of school because they said he had ADHD. Tunkai was shut away in a, in a padded cell, right? Those problems that had been insoluble when they were alone were solved when they were held and valued and, and supported by other people. And, and to me, that was the transformation that has to happen in our culture, right? If we carry on being alone and so profoundly isolated, and social isolation is so high in Australia, if we carry on being profoundly isolated, these problems are basically insoluble, right? But if we return to our human nature, if we return to have been connected, and, and this is just beneath the surface, right? It didn't need much for those people in Cotty to, <clears throat> see how much they needed. They needed each other, right? And, and the relief they got from that. So to me, obviously I go through, you know, a lot of solutions in, in, in Lost Connections, but the, that was the place where the solutions were most clear to me. The nature of the solutions were most clear to me in Cotty. Uh, it, it's a brilliant book, people. And, and, I, and I really believe, I, like I have, I've just been pushing it so hard because I just think, Start paying your permission, Bevan. Well, I, I don't even care. Like you know, like the, the important things are is that that first of all, if you are in this place right now, and I'm sure many people listening to this are this, is that you can get through this, and yeah. and 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 I think I'm sure you're you've had was that, and you're not crazy, no, right? No, to feel this way. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's like the drug thing. You're not a bad person. You've just got a problem that needs to be fixed. You know, and and. What, what you know the important thing to remember is you can get through this and you know i love you know your your book isn't saying drugs you know there's it's some really interesting stuff around the drugs but really we're saying we need to broaden our approach to to overcome this and if you are someone who's experiencing this but also like even me i'm 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 a pied piper in my world you know like i i have the ability to draw people to the things i love and, and to me as i read your book is there's, there's a responsibility i have to be able to try influence society in ways that 
pushes people towards these things. You know, we talk about the marketing and stuff. And so I just think, you know, if you are listening to this, spread the word about the book because it's a really important message. Read the book and then reflect upon where are the areas that you can work on because the thing about the book is as you read it and you understand it, there's no area where you go, oh, that's impossible. You know, now maybe when you're in that place and you're depressed right now, you might not be able to see it, but it might be able to give some framework to move forward from where one day that will be a distant past. And as a society, this is just such a big problem we need to work on. And so I know you've got to go, so I'm just I'm just wrapping things up, but I love your work. I think you're doing very important work. And um, just thank you for your time today because it's such an important area that, you know, we, we've got to have healthy people. We really do. Well, thank you so much for engaging so deeply with with, um, with the book and for the work you're doing, Bevan. And I should um, say, I'm going to be speaking in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Byron Bay. If people go to www.thelostconnections.com slash events. They've not been added yet, but I'm going to be there in um, May. I think it's May. My brain is completely melted. And uh, also if people go to my publisher's time, if I don't say this, that if people go to www.thelostconnections.com, they can find out what loads of people have said about the book from Elton John to Hillary Clinton to Russell Brand yes. um, uh, to Ariana Huffington. Um, and um, they can... Uh, find out where to get the audio book or the book yeah. or um, yeah. loads of other things. And they can listen to audio of interviews with loads of the people we've talked about. Um, you know, some of the amazing experts who, who've, who've written about this and, and uh, you know, I did this interview recently where they were like, uh, at the end of the interview, they were like, what's, can people follow you on Twitter and Facebook? And I was like, yeah, and I gave the things people can go to the website if they want that. But then they said, um, they were like, what's your Twitter? What's your Facebook? And they said, what's your Snapchat? And I was like, I am a 39 year old man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 39 year old men on snapchat are certainly pedophiles right like, <laughs> you can't be asking grown adults that question right uh, oh, we're out of touch we're out of touch hey um i'm just you should be very proud of the work you're doing um thank you so much for your time today and just keep uh, even though norm johnsky was, was is it Chomsky? yeah yeah yeah, it, no, yeah i'm sure there'll be a brilliant book as well i look forward to reading it so keep up the good work and thank you so much for your time today uh, cheers thanks again bevan have awesome. a good day There's so much to unpack in in that interview, isn't there? And um, I'm sure as you listen to this, this there was a lot of self-reflection. I know, like, you know, Johan was an easy interview. He's kind of the guy who knows his content so well and knows, you know, what he's about so well that it's very easy, you know, it's easy to interview. You kind of ask one question and then you can just kind of dig deep into the subject. So as an interview as a person interviewing Johan in that situation, I got the real good opportunity to just do a lot of self-reflection. It's often when you're interviewing, you're kind of more trying to understand the message and you're trying to make sure you're guiding the conversation in a way that's getting the best value for the listener. And with Johan, he's just so kind of, so great. That was very, I didn't really have to do that today. And there was a couple of times um, <laughs> where I almost was kind of deep in thought when he, there was a pause and I had to kind of re realign myself because there was so much self-reflection. And uh, this is important, people. This is, people, geez, what am I doing? This is important. Um, I highly recommend getting the book. And one thing I've been doing with a couple of my clients who have, you know, had a bit of depression in the past is we've really kind of said, okay, well, of the nine areas that we've identified in the book, 
um, where do you need to work on? And actually, I'm going to pause. I'm going to give me a second because I'm going to get the titles just to talk about the areas of connection. And I am back. And so just the, the nine areas that Johan addresses in the book is, first part of the book is about how we're treating depression right now. Then he's got uh, the disconnection areas are meaningful work, other people, meaningful values, childhood trauma, respect and the status, the natural world, hope and or a hopeful or secure future, and then the real role of genes and brain changes. Um, I think it's really important that obviously what Johan's not saying is that we have to totally abandon drugs. What he's saying is there needs to be a better way of dealing with this problem that's becoming a bigger problem in society. Uh, check it out. I, I know even I'm someone who, who doesn't have depression. Um, and actually, when I look at these areas, I feel, generally speaking, I'm doing pretty well. But I've definitely got some work-ons. And I think you know this book is definitely a book that I'll be going back to a lot as I think about the next period of my life and what I'm trying to create with it. So the book is Lost Connections. I'm going to put a link to the book, uh, to his website, everything he talked about in the interview. So you can just go to my website, bevanjamesisles.com. If you want to become a patron on my show, I'm going to wrap it up there. It's been a longer show, but obviously a very valuable show. Uh, If you want to become a patron, go to bevanjamesisles.com. Um, you can get my book, <laughs> The Bevan, The Fitness Attitude. You can get the Kindle version of it now. I've got a reduction in price there, so you can get that there. Uh, and it's very much around the mind side of exercise. So check that out as well. And I'll put it, that's on my website, Bevan James Isles. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, I, I love interviews like that. It's good stuff. Anyway, you have a wonderful couple of weeks, and I'll see you soon. It's Bevan out for now.